Did you know that in the late 1600s, a small group of ordinary people rose up against the establishment and changed society forever? The world called them pirates, but these pirates didn't just break the rules, they rewrote them. They didn't just reject society, they reinvented it. Pirate crews created equal pay, equal say, workplace compensation and even same-sex marriage. In the face of industrial-scale disruption, global conflict and an uncertain future, the pirates of the golden age weren't quite the villains that Disney would have you believe. Welcome to our Be More Pirate podcast. I'm Alex Barker. And I'm Sam Conniff. In 2018, my first book, Be More Pirate, was published by Penguin Random House. After 20 years working with young creatives, the book was an outlet for my frustrations and a quest for some new role models who could capture the spirit of rebellion I knew we so desperately need to tackle the big challenges ahead. And I found it in Pirates. The book then became something far bigger than I ever expected. Be More Pirate is now a global movement of people and organisations taking a stand to update the rules, systems and business models that are no longer fit for purpose. And I went from being Sam's right-hand pirate to leading this community and writing a second book to tell their story. So if you, like so many in our crew, find yourself dissatisfied with the status quo, then this podcast is here to give you permission to do things differently. We'll be interviewing some of the best pirates out there people who really live their values and are willing to stick their head above the parapet for the greater good. We'll tackle some uncomfortable conversation topics and delve into what it really takes to break and rewrite the rules today. Today we're wrapping up our first podcast season, if you could call it that, with the equivalent of a solo number. Sam and I are going to interview each other and reflect on some of the themes, surprises and curveballs of the last year as we continue with Be More Pirate and take it into some interesting new directions. It's like almost a year since we published How to Be More Pirate. We've done the podcast. You've done a whole new programme exploring uncertainty. And it feels like it's something that I was grappling with while writing the book about what it means to be a pirate compared to just a rebel. This element of almost always being in a state of continual fluidness, fluidity, flux, uncharted waters, whatever you want to call it, where you are almost always exploring. You're almost always trying to seek the unknown or Mm. willing to be open to it. Whilst it's fascinating and definitely necessary in every business mantra I'm reading at the moment is saying that we must be able to have the resilience to be more certain with uncertainty and navigate uncharted waters and all of this. And someone sent me Gallup's report today say that. But it's really hard as an individual to not feel anchored. You know, there's this line that we've used, and I remember saying it around the time of the first book, maybe it was even before it was published, and I think I even tweeted it along the lines of the most important rebellion is the one against your own self-imposed limitations. And then someone I like teased me for trying to sound like some kind of self-help guru. And I think even me writing a book about fucking, you know, breaking rules, my ego or my vulnerabilities at the time, deleted what I had concluded seemed to be the ultimate point because I didn't want to come across as like some self-help thing. But I've never forgotten it. I've never forgotten the experience of backing down and being scared on something that I did believe in. And I think in there is this perpetual paradox of knowing that things need to change but being scared of change, you know, almost landlocked rather than than heading to the sea. And it's why the, the spirit of them, once I'd gone into the why do I use pirates, just appealed so much. This generation sets out with no 
knowledge that they're going to come back. We both know that the death rate on those ships, the likelihood of survival was so low. And still, it was better to go out there. And this touches on so many of the things that we think about and that everyone is talking about. Here we all are, like with this big macro system that's kind of, I think the broad consensus is not going in a very good direction. And a lot of people would say that we're heading towards some kind of ecocidal collapse. Yet no one wants to just stop what they're doing. And that stopping is, is kind of the rule that most needs breaking, that deep inside thing. And that's the thing I think we're really hardwired to find it difficult to do. And there's three things that I want to say to that. One is definitely I don't want to stop. The conversation I had with Tom from Take the Jump, a new movement that is trying to encourage individuals to reduce their consumption, particularly wealthy middle-class individuals, and the challenge of you can only buy three items of clothing a year or take one flight every three years was not comfortable (laughs) in any way. And I was like, would I really do that? Will I do it knowing it's what's needed? But also, I was talking to someone else about this the other day, a problem of your landscape, because we have to acknowledge that for some people, uncertainty is a norm and has always been there, as you've explored with uncertainty experts. But for some people, things feel very stable and very much like they're going to continue in the way that they will. And it's it very much depends on what you read and who you surround yourself with and who you talk to as to whether you have a gauge of what uncertainty is likely. But I think that always strikes me because it speaks to the problem we have with algorithm bubbles and all that, as to what you believe to be true about the levels of change that we're experiencing. Going back to your original point about being a thought leader... <laughs> Or as anyone calling you something where you're deemed an an expert or somebody who has a really clear view of the landscape. I wonder if anyone has a really clear view often. This may be a different tangent or different question, but your discomfort with the term self-help, finding that really interesting at the moment because all the coaching work I've been doing and how evident it is from doing that, that we need to do self-help, not in the perhaps cheesy way that it's been done in some respects that often just feels like marketing, but in the deep way, in terms of thinking about people in respect of what's happened to them and how that has formed them and therefore forms their behaviours and how important that is if you're going to unravel any kind of behaviours that stack up to creating bad rules. I take that point where you were getting to about does anybody actually really have an answer? And I think that's a really good point. But it probably connects to the idea of self-help or, or development. The, my contention is that 21st century leadership and leadership with a small L, kind of like that everybody has a role of some kind of leadership, whether you're a mentor or a manager or a mother or anything, is going to revolve largely around being able to say, I don't know, in a really reassuring way. And that's definitely not 20th century leadership where I think we were taught that you had to have a clear vision and you had to be able to map out your plan and three stages to get to that vision. And you see daily leaders get caught in that crossfire if you haven't got a snappy answer and you're going to get availability to the information and say the direction of travel you're slaughtered for it mm-hmm. and I, it's unthinkable and so everyone's involved in that we as the public the, the media that criticized you know the, the business behind people the idea that you'd lose faith when the only real honest answer certainly at the moment like for any long-term planning could surely be not much more than i don't know but where it begins to get interesting is I don't know, but I believe in myself. Mm. I don't know, but I believe in myself and the other people around me and our ability to work things out. Why do I believe in that? Well, I believe in 
you know, the notions of self-help and I believe in the notions of personal development and that the crises we've seen before will inform the questions that we will come up with this time around and, and in theory things get better and that becomes around accountability and responsibility this notion of freedom that piracy is so exciting to me anyway you know there's a great line I can't remember exactly how it goes but you know eventually when you give people freedom what they decide is that they need someone to tell them what to do and stepping out into that space of freedom and having choice becomes really scary. And so that's when we go back into default patterns or you do the work and you stay in that place of ambiguity and not quite knowing what's coming next. And then, yes, of course, you need to fill that with something. And if you're not going to be told what to do, it's going to come from somewhere. My discomfort with the term self-help is I think it has an association. It does have an association, which for a lot of people is kind of worse than cheesy. There's a dependency on self-help, so it kind of undermines itself rather than what I think the promise is. You know, it's like so many things that offer solutions. They don't make themselves redundant. They just make them need them more. Yeah, it becomes like another addiction. You just like, like a, yeah. yeah. <laughs> if I just read one more self-help book, it'll fix me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then myself will be fine. And also I think there's quite a lot of like COD psychology and various things that, 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 that play around in that place. But, you know, there's an awful lot of good. I've certainly drawn an awful lot from the things that I've read over the years, whether they kind of tap into the spiritual business leadership, self-help and, and load of relationship and loads of stuff in between. Probably the real answer is I'm saying it, it's like self-doubt, isn't it? Being a pirate definitely sits in that spectrum. And why am I proud of that? It fucking should be. Like, we, we, if you wrote a better self-help book than other self-help books, then that's a good thing. And we know that it helped people. So it's self-doubt, isn't it? And again, I remember being teased for it. In fact, responding with some hurt to being teased for having written a self-help book. So that's me and my own ego, really. And so then I'm pretending I don't know self-help books because I didn't actually what I didn't like was being teased. <laughs> well, you're never going to appeal to everybody. I think I just always bear that in mind. I'm always conscious that pirates won't be for everybody. But I see that as a such a strong point. You can't say quite unique because that's a qualifier of something that is original. But it is very different way of talking about change and inevitably therefore it will be a bit marmitey yeah and i mean that was the intention i think that's always been the intention with us and the work we've done we've never gone in trying to make friends with people when we talk about going in and running sessions around mutiny you're not doing a gig just to get booked again and i think that touches onto the notions of a lot of the things that we've begun strands of here and in the book so much of business so much of most industries is about self-perpetuation you know my criticism in the charity sector youth sector some of the spaces i've been in once you get up and running with a good idea to try and make things better all of a sudden you become victim to the processes funding profit margin and then your existence is actually the goal and that i think happens an awful lot in so many of these realms so to try and do something that was deliberately you know destructive but destructive in a creative way and to argue that perhaps some of these things are uneven counterproductive but maybe they're just out of date yeah that felt different but you know it does invite you for criticism and if you're going to do that then you should never be looking for the middle ground just to hopefully let's just do a sequel and then try and sell some more books no it's true a lot of people always ask me is be more pirate an organization and it's not i almost deliberately want to keep it in an unusual space of nothingness (laughs) at least that was easy to do during covid but you could call it a brand you can call it a book that became a movement you know, we obviously work to a degree like consultants or insultants or however we want to describe that. But I never want to fall prey to that sense of as soon as I've created infrastructure. Yeah. Suddenly we have to keep it going. And what sacrifices and pressure would that create? And what compromises would you make as a result? 
and I don't ever want to get sucked into that, whether it's funding cycles or overheads. I think that's right. And I've totally done it so many times because we just think that's the norm. You know, some great young person has been sent to me because they've got a brilliant idea. Can you help them make it to reality? And then I trot them through the fundamentals of a business plan. Then you take them through whatever's going to be the business plan blueprint or whatever the coolest new thing. But it's essentially the same way we've been organizing ourselves for 100 years. But then says for this idea to exist, you need these things in place, which is a group of people, some kind of structure around it. And then you need to generate income from other people. So you fall into the kind of supply and demand. So then you're going to have to compromise the idea that it's a well-known and trodden vehicle. Mm. And we so know that. In fact, we don't know any other game in town. So the idea of it's an amorphous thing (laughs) that is part brand, part movement, it would be very, very uncomfortable to so many people because it's very hard to see outside those structures. You know, you can either be an NGO, in which case there's a funded model, or you can be a business, or you can be some kind of community movement. And I know there's more nuances than that to make the argument, right? There's a a certain number of categories of things that you can become. And that means you have to play within the broad ecosystem. We talk a lot about the challenges we face. You and I talk about meta challenges like climate crisis. And there are lots of subset narratives that people pirate in the community of trying to overcome, be it sustainability issues all the way through to diversity or whatever the rules are that people want to break. But the big thing is the big thing, isn't it? It's the big economic ecosystem where all this unfairness and inequality stems from. Even the climate stuff all stems out of the, the, the way that we've structured an economy. So it's kind of crazy that we would have then gone, all oh, right, now let's set up as a business because then you're just becoming the smallest cog in the biggest problem. Yeah, exactly. Everything boils down to the tiny day-to-day rules that you end up playing into and you have to be so aware of them in order to break it and just say no. You know, I'm even conscious of... The role that pace plays in fueling, like you said, that big economic system. Every time I rush my decisions, whether it's I'm just going to nip to Sainsbury's and buy a shitload of food I haven't thought about, whether it's packaged, where it comes from, whatever, versus trying to cram so much into a day that I'm too exhausted. I think that that sense of exhaustion, consistent busyness and burnout just seems to me to be so much the driver of why we've ended up in such a bad system because it prevents people from being able to step back and look at what's going on and actually address it properly. And it also creates that churn of pressure within an organisation where everybody just feels that they have to complete X, Y, Z because the pressure on outputs is so great. So I just feel as though I have to attempt to embody whatever new rules, even if they're really small and simple and soft like that, like I slow down every day even if it makes me feel guilty and lazy and unproductive and all this stuff. I really agree with you. And I think it's good to call out the names of it because I think slow movement and mm. self-help and you can bandy in there like well-being or, or even like you know, self-love. And they can immediately be ridiculed. And because the dominant narrative is commercial, competitive, profitable, like I'm oversimplifying by using bywords, but that machine does so well at belittling the kind of human aspects of things and we're like continuously fighting. You know, we're just going to reinvent. You know, the bloody Buddhists always fucking get it right anyway. Like now we've had to repackage mindfulness. But like two and a half thousand year old wisdom that just says, you know, we and who we are and our well-being and fulfillment is probably more important than any other material thing because any material thing is only going to end up not being here. And, you know, the only certainty is the impermanence of your life and, and come to terms with that or live a lie. But every time we do come up with a new phrase for it, then we have to belittle it pretty quickly because it doesn't stand up against the altar of productivity and that's kind of where I think it goes wrong. And you know, we've talked about how we define the rules that we're breaking to people. And sometimes those are, certainly within organisations, bad decisions that were made 
with the best intention in the past. And now they're just out of date. Their habits, their context has changed. And so they've passed their sell-by date. And that's kind of at a very large scale what's gone on. You know, these broad idea of free market economics, or however you want to kind of term it, the idea that countries are measured in success by GDP, a notion that the guy who invented it said isn't a very good idea for measuring anything, has just remained. Like it was a good rule, maybe it was a good, or there was an argument for it to be a rule in a moment at that time after the Second World War when humans were trying to reorganize the world and it seemed like it made sense. The same as Taylorism, like the altar of productivity and efficiency was invented by this guy to sort out a production line. And those have just stayed as rules. And because we accept them so much, and it's only when you dig right back and go, is that really where it all began? Oh my God, that doesn't feel like it's a good idea anymore. You can begin to see, or I can begin to see, the need for change. And it's that thing, and you're the one who kind of coined the phrase, that rule breaking then moves from being a risky thing to to being the responsible thing to do. Because you've seen the source of this practice and behavior and habit that we all have, you know, as a hangover from someone else's bad decision in a different time. I mean, all that's true. I'm often conscious that today, because we've created this like information machine, the internet, that has so deeply changed the game of what a human system looks like in some way, that your ability to know that those rules or that system doesn't work in some way is greatly increased because information sharing is so widespread, but at the same time is greatly decreased because how do you find what information is correct? I mean, I, honestly, this thought goes around in my mind a lot. Like, how do you ensure that people receive the right information? And there's so many amazing books and ideas that are published. And I think this is what I said when we first started working together. I was so frustrated by the fact that good ideas don't get applied because it's, again, a pace problem. Like, it's too quick. Like, a good book comes out. The author does a little speaking tour. They've done all this amazing research and the research then gets locked in university laboratories and you need these good communicators, good advocates to come out and really talk about it and then quite deliberately want to test and apply it. And that doesn't happen very often. And so that feels to me what we're still locked in the old economic system because the research is there. In donor economics, it talks about how when you study economics, you become more selfish as you go along because the study of talking about self-interest makes you more self-interested so humans are shaped by what they're learning isn't that such a critical insight to understand about how rules and norms get formed and yet we haven't changed anything as a result of that and that's what frustrates me I feel like every organization should try to implement that that thinking of like well the dominant culture is essentially changing people as they're in it I probably haven't described this quite accurately but that's the gist it's it's well made case because it makes me want to go I kind of agree with you, but I kind of want to argue, like, would you advocate taking away information? What's the solution? Like, you've got ever more people. Or even, are they new ideas? I mean, donut economics arguably is a new idea, but is it completely? Mm. Not that I think we need less ideas. I mean, maybe, I mean, it's an interesting idea to suggest we need less ideas, and perhaps we do. We're not saying we need less ideas. We just, we need a way to ensure that the ones that are robust, and maybe it's about that resistance to change, that it's easier to stick with the status quo than to not. So it's almost like, not that we need less ideas, because that ensures that there is rigour, I think, when you've got lots and lots of information and lots of research going on. How do you get an idea that is the necessary update on something that has gone before actually implemented so that it proliferates all the systems, all the organisations? I think that's definitely it, because I think that quite often 
you can list out quite easily like the really big fucking problems and they're really scary. We've got a kind of wealth inequality that seems just totally unsustainable and at some point there's got to be you know some uprising around it you've got social inequality which is already fractured and causes community cohesion i mean why am i listening but they you know you've got so many large global interconnected human massive problems and if i try to think of three solutions of equal size and scale and interconnectedness i struggle you know i can think of a big idea don't i economics is a big idea but does it have international consensus is there like people working on it? not really like the sustainability movement well no, that's kind of fractious you know you, you can pock out s- some things but not great big ideas that go and change the world so i think yes there is something about you know probably multiplied in a shared area is it regenerative economics and how do you package that or present it and then gain popularity around it so it, it moves because your point about change there's that line isn't there that people only change when the pain of not changing is less than the pain of changing. So eventually, oh God, now I'm going to have to do the thing that I didn't want to do. And then you do it like when you eventually update all your passwords, you know, it's only because <laughs> it's so Yeah, it's so true. <laughs> and because the developed world, the white world, you know, the worst we've got is floods. But as climate-induced... Change. <laughs> storms and fires and just naming the actual things that are going to kill people hit countries more, then they're going to start taking it more seriously, as you see you know, with the representations at, at COP, the people who are really taking it seriously are not, people whose lives are at risk most. So that's going to change as well, isn't it, and have a huge impact. And my suspicion is what we're really, really bad at, and this is an observation from my recent work, and also through Be More Pirate, is the interdisciplinary nature of things. Scientists tend to talk to scientists, and so they'll publish a science book and it'll stay within the Community and no one outside that will read it but what if it was taken up by artists and creatives who know how to make records that go around the world and everyone gets behind or what if a brilliant idea that emerged from a soweto township that could change the whole nature you know like microfinance you know there's a big idea actually there is a big idea that went around the world and changed things that was born of a community in bangladesh but then you had an economics professor working with entrepreneurs working with local poor people and then work with the finance sector and that interdisciplinariness is very, very absent. It's such a new concept. It's such a new concept to me. I can't even say the fucking word. But in there, I really do think lies some answers because most industry sectors and skill sets tend to talk to themselves about themselves. My grandmother always told me it was a sign of purpose. <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. It definitely speaks to a lot of what we talk about around crews and crew building and how do you do it. And I was talking to some of the pirates this morning about really striking that balance between the necessary need for connection you have in a group. So to some degree, you have to be able to relate to the other people. If you have no relatability, it is a struggle. And you can do relatability through values. We were talking about this in the respect of building a programme for young people. And you could bring together proactive young people who want to make a change, no matter what community, place, space they exist in. They have that level of like, I'm going to do something here. And that be the, the sort of bind. But then you, you also essentially need diversity to break bubbles. I heard it called the other day, the empathy paradox. So the team that's going to come up with the ideas that the world needs are not all going to look and sound the same. And that's fundamentally true. And we know it. And there, so there has to be like diversity of such meaning and depth. that There's conflict around the table. There's people who have 
different opinions because there's people whose you know livelihoods are at risk there's people who firmly believe in one political dimension and others otherwise we're not going to get to solutions but that group of people will have low empathy and they'll have low trust for each other and they won't recognize each other and so they'll find it hard to communicate and that's the difficult thing we both know it. we've tried in lots of different ways and lots of different times to build create and grow movements and it's incredibly hard the young people community around liberty and life magazine was so predominantly black it was incredibly hard to bring anybody in who wasn't black you know and then vice versa we've equally built communities where we criticize them being overwhelmingly white but as soon as an individual doesn't see itself within that community it becomes pretty hard they don't feel welcome so <sighs> empathy paradox i thought was a very good summary for it how do you build trust by bringing together people in ways that you know automatically we're we're, we're wired not to trust so maybe have two answers to this because i've seen it occur in in our be more pirate meetups by and large because everybody's bought in to be more pirate they all there is a connectedness and a trust that's already there and then occasionally you have somebody who has a slightly different interpretation or perhaps a different interpretation of what we're talking about and there's a sense of you know they don't agree with us so i think the first thing that can break through that is that we have in our code a commitment to including different opinions the more you reiterate it and explain that this is a value and we hold to it and the more that people who don't agree can signal well i've said this twice this week but signal belonging cues which are just like rehumanizing signals that say it's fine keep eye contact praise them when they've made a point that no one agrees with and just say that's a different but valuable perspective on it they don't feel as challenged or excluded Again, this is going back to the point about research that doesn't get implemented. I've read so much that says, you know, vulnerability builds trust, but getting there is so hard and, and ensuring that a team implements this. So you have a group with different opinions, even when it is the case, if they can share something and in particular share how they came to the opinion that they have, then you start to build understanding and trust. Well, I think it connects to your earlier point as well about pace. It takes time. There's a phrase that I really like around this, and it's again, you know, connects uncertainty and pirates are an extension of the same family, and in my mind, that's an extension of liberty as well. It's this necessary thing for us to do if we think we're going to start getting to better answers than one we've got. It's a duty upon us to violate our stereotypes. I really like that as a phrase because it's got all the kind of dynamism around it. How do you violate your stereotypes? And the best way of violating your stereotypes is to be around people who are completely unlike you. But the something you still begrudgingly respect, you know, they get shit done. You know, even they get shit done in a world that you kind of don't like, but there's something around it you can respect. And so by violating your stereotypes, you will, by inhabiting space and time with them, over time, you will change your stereotypes. And there's, according to the research I saw, there's nothing like it. I can't remember what the super wonky term was. But effectively, it was role, counterintuitive stereotype role modeling or something like that. Basically spend two years with someone who has got vastly different outlook on life to you and you will draw from them and increase so if you've got very low empathy and you spend time with someone with super high such annoyingly high empathy like you know they absolutely can't bear them but you will begin to absorb it so it's time is the thing and like you said earlier on the culture we're in is pretty hardwired against something taking two years like what that's far too long but two years was the kind of time frame they were talking about that runs so counter to the way that we live and probably explains a lot of why Twitter generates so much instant <laughs> dislike because <laughs> it's so fast. You don't have the chance to explain yourself. You don't have the chance to add nuance to say, perhaps the first time it came out didn't come out quite right. Or there's numerous reasons why I think this. Please let me explain them to you. You just don't have any room for any of that. 
I'm signed up to the notion that pace is problematic, but I'm not signed up to the notion that it is the problem. And nor do I necessarily think that things should slow down. I mean, you're quite a fast person, Sam. Is there anything that has really changed with you as a result of, you know, moving from Be More Pirate to Uncertainty Experts in the continuum of that journey that you have kind of gone, okay, this is something I do need to do differently or integrate into my life? Yes. And I think it is maybe more than pace is perspective. So two years suddenly seems like a really long time for like me to gain a completely different outlook on life. But I've got another 34 years to live, hopefully, if the world doesn't end in, or, or I get hit by a bus. Um, and that's a much longer time than two years. So do I want to spend 40 years being a bit of a dick with low empathy, or do I want to spend two years gaining empathy from hanging around with this annoying person who's so full of empathy? And it's aligned but a different point. And by maintaining that perspective, we begin to find ourselves, I think, in a different place. So going back to the the, the point around economics and you were talking about, and I really like this, and I'd like to know more about it, you were thinking about depth rather than growth when you were thinking about regenerative versus sustainability. And in this space, I think something begins to emerge because if we see the long-run gain, which is different from not being quick, we're more likely to make decisions over the long term. It's why the, um, I can't remember the, the name of the tribe, but the, the philosophy of them is that you're supposed to make decisions that impacts your grandchildren's grandchildren, grandchildren. So there's always seven generations. That's why now there's a brand who make uh, eco-friendly washing up liquid called Seventh Generation. You know, so it's exactly what we do. We go and take these brilliant ideas and then cheapen them by turning them into brand names. But that long-term thinking—if we had that long-term thinking, we wouldn't be in a problem. So it's not necessarily the pace or the level of ideas. It's we're reinventing and reinventing and not holding on to this idea that what we've got is both a long game and precious beyond belief. So something came up, which I learned about, called the overview effect. And they first really got their head around it when the first astronauts came back from space. They had this fundamentally different outlook on life. And it's because they'd seen the world from the moon. And they saw the world in all its glory and how beauty it is and how fragile it is and how we're so fucking small. And they came back to Earth and they just couldn't view it again. And, and there's a lot of the NASA astronauts and space program and then became, you know, became very environmentally aware. And you get it similarly if you see like nature that inspires awe. So if you're on the edge of a mountain or a Grand Canyon, you know, you, you kind of have this moment of seeing yourself in perspective with the big game. It's one of the few things that are shown, one of the very, very few things that are, have been proven to change people's environmental behavior. You know, if you really give someone an awe-inspiring experience of nature, you know, drop them in a forest and give them some mushrooms, they'll come back and they they will have a different perspective on their environmental behaviours and attitudes around it. I agree with you on perspective. I think that's really key. What you just described, I think that that it's almost within reach for me here. Alan Moore's book, Do Build, it's one of the Do Lectures books. And that's why I've started talking about regenerative business instead of sustainable business, because it's his words and his term. And we had a long walk and chat about what regenerative business could mean. And that's there's a couple of paragraphs in that that talks about the astronaut experience. And it's a beautiful, I think that's where the phrase we, we're all made of stardust is from. And it's, yeah, it's lovely. The idea that, you know, it's circular and goes back around and what you're extracting, you have to put back in. I'd like to get my head around that because I worry about regenerative. I mean, it's, it kind of sounds cool and I get it, I think. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, you were saying you don't believe in sustainability anymore. And what I kind of worry is, you know, we've said this before, Sometimes the key to making a difference isn't starting something new, it's just stopping what was wrong. And if what's wrong is the world is based around an economic model, 
programming of a simpler way of saying that. And that's what's wrong. And so it's not whether we have sustainable economics or circular economics or donut economics or regenerative economics. It's a bad way of organising human beings. Yeah, and certainly certain things have to stop, for sure. And yeah, I got into this really interesting conversation last week with these two guys who are brilliant. And we were talking about the relationship between economic growth and personal growth, because we have coupled the two. One of the reasons why we want economic growth or if you're in a business, you want it to grow is because at the end of it, you're going to get more money as an individual. And that feels pretty good. But isn't the goal of money as an individual anyway, to realize your sense of personal potential, like you want to just have more experiences, do more stuff, like live more life. And can you do that whilst not economically growing necessarily? Yeah, and do you really want to do that? Or is that what we've been told that we want to do? And we've been brought up in a world socialized to tell me that, you know, three new bits of clothing or, or not having the, 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 the trappings that I really believe I want, or even the trappings that I believe I now need to have in place for my children. I was I talking to you about death? Maybe I was talking about death. I think when we had dinner. Possibly. <laughs> this really just struck me. I can't get it out of my head. The research was across palliative nurses all around the world. I think it was a huge number, like 20,000 of them. And these are people who are with people when they die. And they're not just with people who they know they're on their way out because they've got some kind of terminal disease or they're of age, but they're also people who go like, you know, hit at the roadside and it's all over. And I don't think it was like a survey, like they were whipping out the, <laughs> the questionnaire. But nonetheless, they... they created a space where they would ask the same questions, which is about regrets. And the same things came up again and again and again on human beings on their deathbed, whether they were going out like a light or they were able to reflect on their life, they all regretted the same few things. And it was not spending enough time with the people you care about. It was not traveling enough. It was prioritizing work. What was the other one? Broadly, it was about connection. And whilst there's poignance to that and there's like sadness to that, it's also fucking basic. Like how bloody basic do you have to be to realize that the regret on your deathbed is you didn't spend enough time with your family or like get out and see the world enough or like, oh God, you're never going to ever remember all those Saturdays that you work, but you'll remember the fucking Saturday afternoons you spent in bed with someone you love, like one imagines. But that's really basic. I don't want to like get to the end of my life and like, oh dear. <laughs> so then if you let's assume that's the life we're going to lead, where we spend it in nature and awe-inspiring things, you know, I can see the argument for me, well, you need money to do all those things. Mm, the system says we need money to do all those things. We've, we've caught ourselves in a trap. We need money to do all those things. And then we get back to that point where then you need money, so then you have to have business. And then really what you're doing is continuing the cause of it. And, you know, you know me, I'm not, a, I'm not living in a commune in a swamp. You know, I'm totally in the system, but the question remains the same. If you assume you're going to live a life where those won't be your regrets, then what do you want to do? And I think from that place, I don't know, the scales can begin to drop. There's this question in Zen that I was reading about in my research from Alternative Experts, and it's kind of the question of Zen. When you come to terms with the fact that life is ongoing impermanence, and there is nothing that you can be certain of apart from death, everything else around you is a construct to try and like take you away from this uncertainty and impermanence, but really it's just a trapping that will not lose your happiness. And like, Please argue if you don't think that's true. Like, but there's something about Zen Buddhism which just breaks it straight down. That's the only thing you can be sure of. And then everything else is uncertain. So then the choice is: Do you want to live a lie, like forever? Do you want to live and die in a, in a, in a pretense, or are you going to fucking grow up and face the reality of the world, which is that you just simply don't know anything or anything that's going to happen and, apart from your own death? And so you might as well just go and make the most of your life. And it's nothing to do with all of this stuff. And that hits me, and you're like, whoa. 
And I'd still get up tomorrow and I'm going to turn on Netflix and like get in my car and do all the stuff that I'll do. But the truth stays with me more. And the more I keep asking it, the less I deny it. And that is like, for me, or certainly the moment of time I'm on, I wouldn't have got there without this notion of rule breaking. But if you want to get up to the big rules, it's in that space for me. And I don't want to be on my deathbed regretting that. I don't want to think that I lived a life that was a lie. <laughs> well, oh, of course I want to argue. <laughs> I think that again comes slightly down to perspective because yeah I can imagine those things being pretty regrettable but I suppose my own experience and informed by the pirates and be more pirate is that one of the most regrettable things is not being yourself not having had the courage to realize who you are and be it and whatever potential comes with that you know it's great to spend time with your family but not if your family makes you be someone you don't want to be that's what it came down to me when it was married to the idea of growth in a bad way was the, the continual sense of expansion that an individual has and therefore that seems to translate into an organisation or company that becomes then destructive. You know, on the worst sense, in this where the split comes, on the shadow side perhaps, it's ego, isn't it? It's the sense of yeah. wanting power. But there is something else which is more like, again, a personal development thing of maybe peeling back the ego, peeling back the layers, which is more about who you really are being more comfortable with that and not feeling the need to dominate but just recognizing it i agree with that i don't think that's necessarily disagreeing I, li I like that a lot and i like that a lot because i feel it in my life being a part of me was you know i'm now one of the people who write to me saying thank you that book really changed my life because it really did i didn't know it at the time and i know that pre being a part of i was a different person in lots of different environments and i'd trained myself to do that and i thought that was the right thing and I catch myself these days and realize that I'm the same person from environment to environment. There's very few groups or places that I'm not the same anymore. But to a degree, I might be wrong, but to a degree, having you having been an entrepreneur, maybe I'm wrong, but you had already achieved a level of autonomy and agency about what you were going to do and the fact that you were willing to go out and create things in the world that were new. It's all relative, isn't it? It's a scale of where you are. I would be completely different with my closest friends than I would be with my family than I would be with a girlfriend. I, you know, the more the real you, yeah, with an entrepreneur, basically, you're more used to being on a stage and there's more of a license to have personas, I suppose. I mean, like in the me, me. Like, and that's, you know, I think that's what you were touching on, like being who you really are. And I always found that comment really fucking difficult. Like, just be yourself and it'll be all right. I'm like, do you know how fucking many myself there are? Like, which one is going to be the one that makes it all right? And it's all these experiences and it's all the shared experiences that we have that mean so much. I get so much from all of those. I feel the same and consistent. I'm all right with me. Even all the bits that are ridiculous. It's a real relief and much less it was. And probably really, and I, and I attribute that to the being more pirate process more than any other stage of my life. It was through that and the, you know, the huge turbulence that sat behind it. And really was the reason I was, I'd become on this journey to feel this consist me is a great reward thanks Be More Pirate and thanks all the wonderful Be More Pirate community I take it from you yeah and that's the truth in it that behind what looks like a polished and brilliant brand is actually turbulence uncertainty power as well creativity messiness you know people go how can we be more pirate it's like ultimately be more of all of that <laughs> that doesn't always sit well but it is the truth I read to someone very important to me recently the final chapter of Be More Pirate. And you've heard me joke, Alex, that, uh, yeah, it's funny, first two thirds are pretty good. 
And then the rest of us, the rest of us, the rest of us, why I feel the need to put my own shit down is stupid. But definitely, like, of that kind of self-helpy criticism, and I certainly felt it about the last chapter, and I know the pressure that I was under for the last chapter, A, to get it published, but also it really was the, you know, very near the end of my marriage and the book and all the things that it brought up have been so fundamental to that. And it was the beginning of my life as it is now with my girls and everything else. And the last chapter, I went back, and so it's the one bit of the book I've really not been able to go back and read when I've wanted to quote things or do anything else. I've kind of had this dodgy shadow relationship with it. But I knew that it's called Be More You, and I knew the point that I was trying to say I really meant. Anyway, I went back and read it, and by God, I was fucking writing it to myself, and I was writing it to anyone else who feels in that exact moment. And this isn't a self-help book to go and tell you that being a pirate is your answer. The only answer is being you. But by being a pirate, you can get to being you. And that's the thing, really, that this is all about. It's about stripping away all that bollocks that we end up fucking huffing up so that we can pretend to be things that we're not. And it's going completely the opposite way. And I remember the the difficulty of writing that and then actually going back to it and thinking, fuck, okay, that was so what I needed to hear then and what I needed to hear now. And so I really liked it now. I read it to someone else who needed it the other day. Be more you. Thank you for tuning in today. Our hope with this podcast is that each time it might inspire a few more people to realise that the way things are is not the way they have to be, and that maybe it's time for you to step up and take that leap into the unknown. If you like what you heard, then please consider subscribing to the podcast on the platform of your choice. Even better, leave us a review, let us know who you'd like us to interview next, or of course just tell us how you're being more pirate. We are first and foremost a community, so we'd really love to hear from you. Go to at Be More Pirate on Instagram or Twitter or visit BeMorePirate.com. See you next time. <laughs>